This is KHOI Story City Ames, and you are listening to I Am Able Iowa, where we discuss the ability and disability. I'm Anna Magnuson, your host for today, and Daniel Hennedorf and Meredith Frankham, our co-host, are with us through the power of Zoom. Now, Sam Edwards, our I Am Able researcher, provides a question to kick off our show now, and she wants to know this. Dun, 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 dun. Who is your favorite person or group to follow on social media? So who wants to kick it off? I, um, I'm not a huge social media user, but one of the people that I do follow is Brene Brown. Um, I love me some Brene, and uh, she always has super insightful, interesting things going on her social media, so I definitely uh, like to see what's going on in Brene's head every once in a while. So for the listeners who don't know who Brene Brown is, who is Brene Brown? Uh, Brene Brown is a uh, vulnerability and shame researcher who talks all about the power of vulnerability to uh, make life and also business better. And she is kind of like one of my personal heroes. She's fabulous. Yeah, so I would say check her out. I do like her. I'm a fan as well. All right, Daniel, you're on the spot. When I am on social media, I cannot stop going to pages dedicated to I am able Iowa. <laughs> was, that, was that natural? That was very natural, Daniel. I loved it. And I approve of your answer. I'm like, yeah, that's right, Uber fan. Love it. All right, Daniel, so we're going to move on. We're going to, would you please introduce our guest today? Sure thing. Our guest today is Samantha Schroth. Sam is a passionate advocate, avid learner, and is always ready to take on another challenge, usually with a cup of coffee in hand. Originally from Wisconsin, she grew up in a tight-knit family with plans to pursue veterinary school until a freak accident and spinal cord injury in 2013, resulting in paraplegia, altered her life trajectory. Since her injury, Sam has sought to challenge disability-related bias, serving as Miss Wheelchair Wisconsin in 2014 and Miss Wheelchair America in 2015. Currently pursuing MD-PhD training at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois, Sam continues her advocacy efforts and is published in the Chicago Tribune and Journal of Academic Medicine, serving as a board member of the Disability Advocacy Coalition in Medicine and participates in adaptive sports. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and spend some time with you guys today. So Sam, how would you answer the question that Samantha Edwards provided, which was, who is your favorite person or group to follow on social media? Yeah, that's a good question. I I really like following people that post food pictures just because I like food. Um, but I think in honor of the Olympics and Paralympic season, I'm going to go with some of my my Paralympic um, role models that I like to look up to. Um, Susanna Scaroni, she's actually going to be competing for the United States. She's a track and field athlete. Um, I think she's competing in the marathon as well as a number of other sports, but she's actually going for a master's in nutrition. She's at the University of Illinois. So she's really awesome. And then Kelsey LaFleur. Or, um, she also is a Paralympic track and field athlete, and they're both just great people, really fantastic athletes. And yeah, I've looked up to them since my injury, and it's been cool because I've got to meet them. So, Oh, that's great. Well, I think you beat both of the answers that we gave previously. <laughs> so, But let's, um, let's share what your life was like before 2013. Yeah. You know, 
I feel it is funny because you kind of think of your life in these two parts, the like before and after, (laughs) which is a little strange, but also I think probably something a lot of people experience Um, when you have an injury like mine. I think I would consider my life pre-2013 to be pretty normal or average, whatever normal and average looks like. Um, I'm from Wisconsin originally, grew up in a pretty uh, small town, like suburban slash rural, but more suburban area. Um, I have a family. I'm from a family of five, mom, dad, and then an older and a younger sister. So I am the proud middle child, a badge I wear with honor. <laughs> uh, we're just like very busy, busy people growing up. I was a proud 4-H'er. So, all you know, summer was 4-H. That's what we did. I actually was home last week for county fair. I think once you're a 4-H'er, you're always a 4-H'er. So I went home to go to county fair. Uh, but yeah, just kind of like You're typical, busy all the time. I really liked school, had a lot of hobbies. Um, Yeah, I think I just got in trouble because I needed to be doing something all the time. So, yeah, pretty pretty normal 2013 um, or like pre-2013. Yeah. Okay. And so then what happened on May 25th, 2013, and how old were you at that time? Yeah. So, so going up to that date, I was actually, you know, at the time I was pursuing a degree in animal science at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. We've been drinking from my U of M Twin Cities coffee mug this morning. <laughs> so I was pursuing a degree in animal science. My, my desire and ultimate career plans was to become a large animal or mixed animal veterinarian. Um, I wanted to kind of have an impact on the world that was bigger than myself. And I was like, well, everybody eats. I can, I can help to keep our food animal population safe. You know, I, I grew up on a farm, so I have a lot of respect for all the farmers and my dad still cash crops and we had cows growing up. Um, and, you know, that was a that was a world that I loved uh, and something I was very passionate about. So did undergrad in three years, went to the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, and then I graduated um, a week before May 25th. And then on that that Saturday, <laughs> it's like the day that will go down in infamy. Um, I was up north with a friend and their family at North in um, the north eastern corner northwestern northwestern corner of minnesota um at a lake you know kind of your typical start to summer beautiful day outside no wind no rain um we had just put in the dock and you know getting ready to take the boats for the sail so we were standing in the front yard and the last thing i remember is looking at my um my friend who was kneeling down by the hull of a sailboat just kind of checking it all over before we put it in the water and while I was standing there looking at him, um, a dead tree just fell on me. So the section of the tree that landed on me was five feet long and a foot and a half in diameter. It actually took two people to lift it off of me. Uh, once they had the tree off, I, they, I was driven from the cabin to a, a clearing. And then from the clearing, I was airlifted by helicopter to the nearest trauma center, which is actually in Fargo, North Dakota. Um, and that's where they, they did all of the, the tests and realized that I had the spinal cord injury or that I had a spinal cord injury. Um, so basically, sorry, the, the extra noises, those are my cats. So my apologies. They're very excitable in this moment, which is very, I guess, fitting for the story topic. I don't know. They're, they're providing that background noise for you to like dramatize the story. Clarence like, and Ingrid, that's all right. You're part of the show. Yeah, they're, they're very excited this morning. Anyway, so... Yes, had um, at the hospital. It's where they realized, like, okay, this is this is a spinal cord injury. Um, you know, had a ten-hour surgery to be able to, you know, re 
kind of reconstruct the bones that were basically blown to bits by the the pressure and the weight of the tree. Um, when I was out of surgery, the surgeon told my mom that I'm, that I was, I was pretty lucky to be alive. And that if that tree, if I would have been any taller, any shorter, if that tree would have fallen any higher, shorter, that the bones and the number of broken ribs I had and punctured lung, like I would be dead. And the fact that I was alive was really a miracle um, in and of itself. So yeah, it was a it's a little bit of a traumatic experience. I actually don't have any memory of the instance. The last thing I remember is looking at my friends looking at the sailboat. Um, and I don't remember anything until a month later. So like that retelling is all from what I've been told from other people. Um, yeah, but I was apparently awake and conscious through all of it. You know, I was talking to people, but I don't recall any of it, which I'm actually really grateful for. It would, I think that would be a, a very traumatic memory to to have. <laughs> Yes. And do you, what, what what were you saying? What did your friend say that you were saying? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of groaning. I'm sure it hurt a lot. <laughs> um, and even in the hospital, I mean, I was initially after my, my injury, um, I was in the critical care ICU. I was on a vent because I had um, busted ribs and the collapsed lung on top of having some sort of infection in my lungs. So I think there was just a number of things going on. Um, of course, when you're on a vent, you can't actually talk very well or talk really at all, um, at least not the way that I was intubated initially. So um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think back on that time, and I was like, wow, I've, I've come a long way. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. So, Meredith, well, I was going to ask, so how did your life change after your accident? And also, I found you, the way that we found you for you to be the guest on I Am Able Iowa is I found your blog. And just loved your blog. I saw a picture of Ingrid. I was like, that is a gorgeous cat. And just met Clarence today. Um, loved your blog. So in a blog post, and you shared that Memorial Day is a uniquely special one to me as it lands on May 25th, the seven-year anniversary of my injury. I was injured at age 21. So as today, I've officially lived in this wheeling existence for a third of the length of time I lived walking. Such a, dare I say, accomplishment may not seem like a mark worth noting, but thinking back to a time when living seven days as a wheeler seemed impossible, while making it and thriving generally for seven years is a beautiful thing. And I just, I was so touched by your blog. I think um, I I loved what you had to say in those blog postings. But um, sharing that, how did your life change after the accident? Yeah, you know, I think maybe the better question is, how did my life not change? I think that would take me less time to answer. Um, now, and I, man, and it's, it's funny because the more years that pass, the, the more challenging it is to even think about all the things that are different because so much is different. Um, obviously, you know, there are the physical differences that you notice. Like I'm a full-time manual wheelchair user. You know, I have no, no function below my, my level of injury. I guess I didn't say that is considered T6, T7 or thoracic six, thoracic seven. So that's like the level of your spinal columns or those bones in the back, the bones in your back, um, which is just right above your belly button. So that's where my my spinal cord was injured. It wasn't severed. It was just bruised. And when you have that very deep bruising, your your cord doesn't heal like the rest of your body does. So the messages from your brain don't actually pass through. So then your legs never receive the communication that they're supposed to move when they need to move. Um, So all of that to say, you know, I have no lower body function, which means there was a lot of time that I had to spend in rehab, just learning how to do all of the things that I, I took for granted. You know, things that I learned how to do when I was 
yeah, one or two years old, right? Like, I think that's when you're learning how to put on your pants. But I remember having, I was, I was in the rehab hospital. I went to, to Craig in Denver, Colorado. Um, I've always wanted to go to Denver, not necessarily the way I would recommend getting to Denver or <laughs> the reason to go to Denver. Um, but still, so I was, I was in Colorado and that was where I did the majority of my rehabilitation, at least of in my inpatient stay. Um, you know, having a class to like learn how to dress yourself because when you when you can't stand up to put on your pants, it's a little bit more challenging to put on your pants. Uh, you know, you, I wore a lot of a lot of yoga pants. It was like wasn't the pandemic then, but I wore a lot of yoga pants. <laughs> uh, you know, and it was a really big deal the first day that I did put on my pants. And I can tell you, every single person I saw that day, I told, "Hey, I put on my own pants today." And was, no one dressed me; I did it myself, um, even if I didn't know them, which was maybe a little strange. But I was proud, and I, you know, I guess I'm, I still put on my own pants. And I'm still very proud. <laughs> I guess I'll just say that. Um, you know, when you start off and you're learning things, you're learning how to do these things that don't seem like a big deal or shouldn't seem like I was 21 years old when I was injured. Um, but like learning how to dress in bed, which isn't very, uh, you know, like you need to know how to dress in your wheelchair because you have to go to the bathroom during the day and then you need to be able to dress in your chair. Um, but that all takes time and all of these skills that you just need to figure out, like even learning how to get in and out of your wheelchair and how do you transfer yourself from point A to point B. Uh, I did not have a lot of upper body strength, but now that's what I was relying upon, which was which was a, a whole bunch of a challenge, right? You know, like I need to use my arms to get myself on and off of the couch, but the only legs or the only strength I have was in my legs. Like I was a runner. So I, well, like a recreational runner, I guess you could say I wasn't very good, um, but I did, I had zero. I would lose any single arm wrestling match I was ever in. Um, thankfully that has changed now, but yeah. So, I mean, there's so many just little life skills that I needed to figure out and even learning how to, to mobilize myself in my chair. Um, but aside from that, I think when you, when you think beyond like the physical, the physical changes that happen post-injury, I think there's so much that happens emotionally and mentally. Um, you know, when you start having to come to terms with what is disability and what does disability mean and how does this new identity of being a disabled woman um, alter the trajectory of my life or not alter the trajectory of my life? Or how do people view me now as compared to how they viewed me before I was injured? Uh, so I think there was a lot of soul searching um, and thinking about the things that I really cared about and what was my passion and what was my purpose in life that maybe I hadn't thought about before. I don't know a lot of 21 year olds that think about the big existential questions, but I definitely was at a reason at a place in my life where, where I spent a lot of time thinking through those things. Okay. So once you got past Craig and you were rehabilitated enough to go home, what was that transition like? And you've been living independently as an adult, right? A college student. <laughs> that's, that's adulting, yeah. right? So what was it like um, afterwards when you came home? Yeah, that first, that first transition home, I, so when I was discharged from the hospital, I had already graduated college, which I'm very grateful for that like I had finished all of that. Um, cause man, that would have been a challenge having to go back to school right away after. Cause you're still figuring things out. Even when you're discharged from the hospital, like you're, you're safe enough to go home. You can function on your own, but you still have a lot to figure out. Um, and so I, when I discharged home, I discharged home to my, 
to the to the house I grew up with or grew up in um, back in Wisconsin with my family, so my mom, my dad, my sisters. Um, so that's when I discharged home. And those first three months, like when I think of dark periods of my life, <laughs> I think like I don't necessarily think of the day of my injury because I think there's just so much happening. And even in your rehab, there's so much happening, and you're learning so much that you don't even have time to kind of sit and process everything that was lost or different. But those first three months when you're, you know, watching hours and hours of Brady Bunch because you don't have cable and that's what's on me TV <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever reruns are on TV. Um, you, know, you have a lot of time to think about things and to process through. So those first three months were really, really challenging. Um, I also really love school. I'm like that kind of strange person that fall is my favorite time of year, not only because it's so pretty and smells great. Like I love the scent of fall, uh, but like I love new school. I love school. I love new notebooks. I love new supplies. Um, and this was the first year that I wasn't starting school in the fall since, you know, as long as I could ever remember. And so that was supposed to be the fall where I had, where I was going to be in vet school. And I was finally doing the thing that I had spent my life basically working towards um, achieving. And now I was sitting at home trying to figure out how to put my pants on in my wheelchair while some of my friends were off in vet school. Um, so that was that was a huge transition, just trying to to figure out and then to process through, OK, what what is my life going to look like now? I had deferred vet school at that time, um, but I didn't know, OK, maybe I would go back to maybe I would go back after I had a year at home, just kind of figure things out and to become more independent. I was not independent when I when I um, first was discharged home. It took a year or two just to kind of like get everything figured out. Um, but yeah, that first, those first three months were challenging. And then slowly but surely, <laughs> you start to turn the corner, um, and you start to adjust and you start to transition. You find your purpose in different ways, um, or even in the, in the old things, but just doing them in a different, more unique way. So one of our borrowers, um, at Able Up Iowa, she had a spinal cord injury. She fell from a balcony. And so what she told us is that after she fell and the injury happened, the physical therapy was tough, but it was the adjusting to she had a full active social life. And then all of a sudden that just stopped. Nobody asked her to go to the movies. Nobody because they didn't know how to ask her. They stopped visiting because they didn't know what to say. Did you find that during the three months as well? Yeah, and I think that's one of the most challenging aspects of, you know, when you have an injury is oftentimes I think people, people become very afraid, like, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing or, oh, I don't, I don't know how to treat them now. Um, and I guess to anyone out there listening or following up on this, like, don't be afraid. I think it's better. It's oftentimes people just want to show that they're cared, like people want to be cared about. Um, and even if you know, you're going through, those people are going through a hard time and, and you maybe say the wrong thing, you know, like it's better to say something than nothing at all. Um, and I know that there are definitely some friendships that I or I don't even know if you'd call them friendship. There are people that I was closer with before my injury that then I was not afterwards. Um, and I don't know if it was like a, you know, oh, 
maybe it's contagious, you know, spinal cord injury isn't contagious, but like, you know, people would not like, didn't want to talk with me. Um, it was like, oh, you know, that's too much or you're too much now when I am very much the same person before my injury than, you know, after my injury than I was before, um, maybe a little bit more mature. At least I'd like to think I'm a little bit more mature. And perhaps I definitely see the world and through a different lens now being going from my walking to wheeling. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's extremely challenging when all of a sudden everyone views you in a very different light. And I think that just kind of is a huge comment on what we as a society often think of disability and what it means to us um, and kind of the the attributes or the things that we attribute to what disability means and compare that to the reality of what disability actually is. Uh, I think a lot of that soul searching that I spent in those first three months was thinking like, oh, my life is over. I can't do anything anymore. I'm not going to be successful. Um, and all of that was just based upon this kind of like passive absorption of information of what I thought disability was. And, oh, that's for, you know, when you can no longer contribute. And all of that's wrong. Like, that is totally false. That's not true at all. Um, your disability is just, it's an identity like many other things. Um, and it changes the way you interact with the world in certain ways. And it may mean you need certain accommodations. I don't really do stairs. <laughs> you know, there are certain things you just need with a disability. But in the next breath, like, it's a beautiful thing. It means nothing about who your your self-worth as a person. Um, but I think there are certain, certain narratives of disability that have often been told and retold um, that do much more harm than good. Mm. So, Daniel, you've been listening to Sam's story. What is your response and thoughts? I'd like to ask um, a little bit more about that immediate shift back from uh, physical therapy in Denver going back to your home, Wisconsin, because, again, we've been talking sort of about the perceptions that people have about uh, life with a disability or how to treat you. Going back to living with your family, like, did they... Uh, treat you the same way that they would otherwise? Or did they also sort of have that bit of trepidation, that sort of uh, fear that they would say the wrong thing? Yeah, and I think that's a really great question. Um, and I'm so, so blessed <laughs> to say, you know, everyone comes from a different experience and has different stories of how their their disability affects their family life. Um, but I was so blessed and have been so blessed to have such a tight-knit and close family. Um, my mom, when I was injured, actually stayed with me in my hospital room. So we were roommates. I have never been a roommate with my mother before until my injury. Um, so she saw the good, the bad, the good, the bad, and the ugly you know, of my of my injury and rehab. Um, and then when I transitioned home, and then it was my mom, my dad, and my little sister. My older sister um, was she had her own her own house. Um, she's much older. Well, not, I guess not much older, but anyway, she was you know living in a different situation. Um, and, you know, there was there were adjustments that we needed to make to the house just physically for me to get into it. So we built, you know, there was a um, some community volunteers from our Lions Club that came and put in a ramp so I could actually get into the house without assistance, which was awesome. Um, they actually I used to like sleep in a twin bed um, and we actually got to you. I used my parents bed uh, and they like so I actually slept in my parents bedroom and they slept on a couch initially until we could get a bed that would like work for me. Um, that was a little bit lower. It's a normal person bed, but it was a little bit lower. Um, all this, and I'm just giving these as examples of all the ways that my family was so willing to go out of their way to like sacrifice, you know, maybe their own comfort and, um, 
yeah, their own comfort and their own just general well-being in order to help me do what I need to do to survive um, or just kind of grow and learn um, and be a healthy, involved person. Uh, and so I think, you know, my, I was definitely, when I was in rehab, it was a lot of learning and, you know, teaching and I liked to learn and teach. And so it was a lot of learning and teaching when I did go home and talk to my dad and, you know, talk to my sister who didn't spend sisters who didn't spend that time at Craig, like my mom did. So she already knew all this stuff. Um, but they were so supportive. And so I guess I didn't, ever have to experience that same kind of trepidation with my family. Um, it was much more of a safe place, which was, which was really nice. But then I guess it made um, sometimes going out in public a little bit more scary. Cause I was like, man, I don't, I'm not used to this where like people treat me so different because my family never really did. Um, but I, I feel so grateful because I know that's not an experience a lot of people have. So I was I was very lucky to have extremely positive family life experience and a safe home base to kind of even if I had a bad experience when I did go out in public, I could come home and just be like, okay, these people get me. They love me, you know. And I definitely use a lot of humor to deal with my injury. That's just kind of like I use humor to deal with anything. <laughs> and that's something that is shared amongst my family members. Um, so we have a lot of jokes from the early, early time of, uh, you know, this first three months when it was super dark um, and challenging. And even now I think back on them and they just make you chuckle. You know, it's the little things. <laughs> my ringtone, for example, my ringtone when I first came home was back when Kesha um, came out with Timber. So that may have been my ringtone, which is like a really dark thing. That but, is dark. Yeah, I was like, but I loved it. And it was, it was, that was my ringtone for the first year and a half. Um, it's still a great song, but I, I, like Samantha, you should not a, put anyway. <laughs> a terrifying new meaning to let's make a night you won't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Think about that next time that song comes on. <laughs> So I want to talk a little bit about the blog and why you started it and what you were hoping to accomplish by it and what need that it filled for you. Yeah. So I, you know, when you're, when you're a little kid, I'm going to like come at this at a little roundabout of a way. Um, when you're a little kid, everyone asks you like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, my answer was an author. Like I wanted to be an author for the longest time when I was a kid. And then I realized <laughs> it's really hard to make a living as an author. My hack goes out to anyone that can write and is that good at writing that they can make a living as an author. Um, so anyway, that kind of like fell by the wayside, but I continued like throughout my life, just journaling on occasion. Um, just kind of like, I don't know. I, I realized that I think really fast and I don't necessarily process my thoughts very well. So writing was a way for me to pause and reflect and process. Um, and then I would see the outcome instead of just getting lost in my own mind. Um, and then while I was in the initial hospital, that early phase, my my mom was writing Caring Bridge posts. Um, it's a website kind of for for people just to stay on top of what's actually happening. You know, and after my injury happened, so many people were were very kind and gracious and reached out like, "Hey, what can we do for you? How can we help? What's Sam? What's happening with Sam?" Um, and you know, that's a and it was so kind, but also it can be really overwhelming when you have this like family member that's trying to field all of these calls while also understanding what's happening medically 
with a pretty complex case like mine was. So mom would write occasional CaringBridge posts. Um, and then when I started coming to, or like when I have memory of what was actually happening, I was like, you know, you should, you should maybe write one of these CaringBridge posts. So when I was in the hospital, I was actually writing a few, I wrote some CaringBridge posts, um, on that website and I you know it's funny to look back at them now because like wow I was such a different writer I was thinking such a different thing Um, but then after I had transitioned home I was still writing occasionally on the caring bridge but then at six months I was like you know I want to transition this from like this caring bridge hospital sick kind of sick persona phase place into a place that's more mine um, where I can really share these experiences that I'm having because I I realize this this disability experience is one that people just aren't they don't often think about or you know it was something I had never thought about before like oh you know people who use wheelchairs what's the difference or does it matter what are they doing with their life does it you know all of these things and all of these in, um, these bias and associations I had with disability that I wanted to break down and wanted people to realize, hey, that isn't the case. Um, and also just because like people were interested. What are you doing? I tend to be a bit of a busy, busy body. So I was like, oh, what are you, how can you do this? So then I, I started writing a blog um, at my six month, I think was my first official WordPress blog post um, where I started sharing some of these experiences and I was pretty consistent in the beginning and now it's kind of more ebbs and flows based on what my experiences are and what I want to share. Uh, but yeah, I felt it was a really good place for me, not only to process through the things that I'm experiencing. Uh, I think that's kind of like the main, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a therapeutic. Oh, wow. They're really having fun today. My apologies. They're like really good. And then all of a sudden the cats are not really good. So if you're uh. just listening, you're listening to I am able Iowa and you're hearing Clarence and Ingrid having a good time, the cats in the background. But we're talking with Sam Schroth, author of the blog Never Sitting Still, and she's talking about uh, that blog. So um, yeah. Ingrid and Clarence, are you done? Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> they're just like very set. They're just unique creatures. I love both of them, but they have such unique personalities. Uh, but yeah, all that to say, I think my blog was a huge place of reflection, um, a place for me to process and also kind of share and encourage people to think more deeply uh, about things that they probably hadn't thought about before, unless all of a sudden they were faced, come face to face with an experience like the one I was going through. So Daniel, you're a writer, so you probably are connecting to a little bit about what Sam's saying about her own writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I definitely can agree with the uh, aspect of having an opportunity to sort of slow down the the pace of one's thoughts and sort of put everything down on one document that can uh, more easily express in a uh, relatively concise manner, like what one's thoughts are on a subject or how one is determining something to be done. So I can definitely agree in that regard. Um, is it still, I mean, I'm assuming you're still working on it as Anna just, um, cited a quote from a few months back, but is it, I mean, considering Anna also discovered it, like, is it still rising in popularity? Is it something that is, um, becoming more of a, an aspect of your identity now? Yeah, I think my blog ebbs and flows based upon the busyness of life (laughs) and just, you know, school and work and extracurriculars um, and even just experiences. I I find myself writing more when I'm 
like especially passionate or brought on by a certain experience. Um, I'm very consistent in terms of that. I always write a blog post on May 25th. So I always have injury anniversary blog posts. Um, that was probably my last one for this year right now is the May 25th for my shoot eight year anniversary already. Um, but I think it's something that you know, I, I write when things come and are passionate or things when things happen that I experience that I'm passionate about. Um, I don't know if I necessarily say it's rising in popularity or anything like that. I think oftentimes I write my blog more for me than for people who read it. I'm so grateful for everyone that does read it. Um, and, you know, I've heard so many great things and experiences um, or, you know, thoughts are like, oh, you made me think about something new. And there's also just something really powerful about sharing your words with another person um, or even being able to go back and look on the things you write. And you're like, wow, I remember when I was I was going through something at that point in time and I had this experience. Um, so I think that's yeah, that's how I would answer that question. Right. That, that different um, perspective that comes with it. Um, There's, there's something else that I wanted to ask, which is um, in regards to your history with Miss wheelchair, uh, Wisconsin, and then America Um, did, was that sort of something that led you to entering those, um, I don't want to say competitions. I want to, what's, what's a better word for it? Yeah, No, I think you could call it a competition. I mean, because they're pageants in a sense, but, yeah, the Miss Wheelchair America organization is an organization I kind of fell upon um, as I was looking for for different outlets for advocacy um, and ways to enact change because I was really I was really blown away by this idea of how different I was treated post injury as compared to pre injury um, and how differently I was viewed just because I was you know quite a bit shorter I'm six feet tall but you can't tell anymore like now. <laughs> I don't know how tall you are in a wheelchair. I think I've measured myself before, but I can never remember. Um, so I'm shorter than I used to be, but I was blown away by how differently I was treated. So I, I fell upon the Miss Wheelchair America organization. Um, and we have, there are yearly, there are pageants in, in different states. Um, and those pageants aren't, you know, based on kind of what you would consider, uh, you know, when you consider the Miss America organization, um, there aren't like the, I guess I granted they've changed recently. Um, but like, it's, it's all based on your ability, like the competition itself is based upon your ability to educate and advocate um, for persons with disabilities. So there there aren't any outfit changes or anything like that. Um, and you don't have to perform a talent or something like that. But it's all based on a platform speech and then interviews, like private interviews with judges, um, answering different questions about disability and disability advocacy and your own passions and purpose in life. Um, so that's how I ended up falling into the Miss Wheelchair Wisconsin. I was like, okay, this is something that I want to I want to do. I think it's important in advocacy, um, including encouraging people to be more aware and to consider, okay, what is disability and how can I be a positive advocate for change related to this population of people that is only continuing to grow? Um, so I, I competed for Miss Wheelchair Wisconsin and then won. And then after you compete at the state level, you go on to compete at the national level. Um, and my national competition was in Long Beach, California. And I was like, this will be so great. It was less than a year after my, um, when at less than a year after my discharge from the hospital. So it was like August 2014. Um, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, you know, you get messed up with the years. It was August 2014 and it was Long Beach, California. It's like, this will be great. I'll have all of these opportunities to meet and network with 
some other women wheelers. A lot of the, when I was in inpatient rehab, a lot of the other individuals were all male, which was great. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed getting to meet all of the people that I did my rehab with. But there are certain experiences as a woman that you want to, um, especially in a wheelchair, that you want to have other people that have gone through it and kind of like, okay, how do you how do you navigate this experience? Um, like I can still have kids and, you know, I can be a parent, I can become pregnant, all of those things. But I was like, I don't know what that's like. Um, so I was like, oh, it'll be great to form this community and this network. So I was pretty blown away when then I was crowned Miss Wheelchair America and had this opportunity to travel around um, and to do all of these like, speaking speaking engagements and um, engage with the disability community in a larger sense. So I think my my whole encounter with the Miss Wheelchair America organization um, was ultimately founded upon this desire to to continue to advocate and to promote this promote this awareness. Uh, my platform was learning teach repeat so just that whole idea of learning about things that you're less sure of or unaware of like the disability population you no know, um teaching them to others and then just repeating it over and over again so in a sense as you said your your education never truly ended <laughs> you can say that again a lifelong learner i guess i am a perpetual student <laughs> i don't know if that will ever change i'm 29 and still in school so <laughs> let's talk let's talk about your school experience so you're right now a medical student yeah how yeah. did that happen and what is it like <laughs> you know, every once in a while, I think about that too. It's like, how did this happen? <laughs> this is not what I had intended. Um, you know, I was going to go for medicine, but it was four-legged, not two-legged. Um, so, so, so yeah, I'm a current medical student. Um, I'm actually going for my dual, a dual degree. So I'm going for both my MD and my PhD to ultimately become a physician scientist. So this is an individual who has the ability to see patients in the clinic and have a clinical practice like any kind of doctor that you normally go, like your primary care provider that you go and you would see, um, but then is also able to do research, whether it's, um, you know, at the bench, quote unquote, where they say in like you're in the lab and you're taking the things that you experience with your patients and bringing them back to the lab to kind of improve certain aspects about human health and medicine and how we currently treat different diseases or pathologies um, and improve them for a larger, larger population of people. Uh, so I am currently in that program. It's a pretty long program because obviously you're going for two doctoral level degrees at the same time. Uh, so I go to school at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine in downtown Chicago, Illinois. I live very close to Michigan Ave, which still blows my mind. I remember coming down here when I was a kid being like, why would anyone want to live in this place? And here I am. But I do love it. It's just very different than what I ever expected. Um so in our program, you do two years of medical school. So I did my first and second year of medical school. And then you you take one of your first set of boards and then you stop medical school in a sense. So I still go to clinic on occasion to you know see patients um, with a with a physician preceptor. But then I'm predominantly in the lab right now, working on my PhD, doing research in a particular topic. And then I'll go back to, after I have my PhD. I'll go back to medical school for those last two years where I'm actually on the wards, quote unquote, or I'm in the hospital seeing patients. Um, and then I'll complete with both degrees. You know, I, how did this all happen? I think you would ask that question. That's a loaded one. <laughs> you know, how did it all happen is, is definitely, you know, I don't really know. Um, <laughs> I think in those early days, you know, those first three months that I had talked about, you spend so much time thinking about like, what do you do? <laughs> Sorry, my cat doesn't belong on the counters, but he's definitely on the counters. I know you can't see it on the radio, 
But if you're on Facebook Live, you can totally see. But it's Clarence the kitten. So Clarence is like a little, you know, tabby, orange tabby. And now he's like in the Tupperware container. So he's making his presence known on IMAPLE Iowa. And it's and it's because he knows I'm doing something and I can't yell at him. So like he's like, oh, I can get away with things right now. Anyway, um, this is the saga that I currently exist in. But when it comes to the to the medical school, you know, those first three months and trying to figure out what is it that you know I'm really passionate about. What's going to make me get out of bed in the morning? because it can be a little bit more challenging than it used to be. Um, it's a lot more work transferring than it was to just stand up. So I realized just so much I love working with people and that impact you can have on another person's day-to-day life. Um, I was like, you know, I, I still love science. I still love medicine. But this whole idea of, of the hospital and working directly with people, especially when you're in these extremely vulnerable and confusing um, and unknown states, uh, I think an experience that I had when I was in the hospital, um, I can remember like, you know, I had I had my team of doctors, but then on Saturdays there was they would like rotate through in terms of who was on call on the weekends. And I can still remember there was this one Saturday I was having an absolutely terrible day. Um, I don't remember anything particular that had happened, but I just remember like everything hitting me. It's like, wow, this is this is a lot to handle as a 21 year old Um probably crying, you know, all that kind of ridiculous things. I think my mom was gone and out of the room. Um, so it was just me just kind of like, you know, having a little pity party, just like that. The doctor knocks on the door and comes in the room like, Oh, this is a fitting time as you're crying. Um, and it wasn't my physician, but it was another physician in the hospital. Um, and ironically enough, he was a manual wheelchair user. So he was a paraplegic who had had a spinal cord injury, um, when he was quite a bit younger and then ultimately went to medical school and was currently practicing medicine there. And I don't remember him saying anything overly like life changing, but I think seeing him in that moment, realizing my life doesn't have to be over if I don't want it to be over, you know, you can continue on, you can do whatever it is that you desire to do, whether it is medicine or whether it's, you know, something entirely different. Um, and I think that just opened a lot of doors for me. And then as I was and, you know, ultimately kind of transitioning through those three months, spending time figuring out what is it that I'm passionate about that ultimately caused me to, to do the flip into medicine where I'm, you know, currently halfway. <laughs> so I'm four years in right now, which is makes you realize just how long of a process it is. And you're like, well, I'm halfway, <laughs> but it's good. I love what I'm doing. Um, you know, there, there are days where I love it more, <laughs> but but it's good. Well, congratulations. I wanted to talk a little bit more and give Daniel a chance to ask a question, too. But I am curious to know how people treated you differently from pre-injury to post-injury. And then just when you're thinking about the changes that you would like to see when it comes to thinking about disability and changing that narrative, can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I think the initial... You know, the ways that you're treated differently, it's a lot of assumptions, you know, assumptions about things that you can and cannot do um, or like that. You know, I the classic I think the classic question is if you're you're at a restaurant and the someone will ask, you know, oh, what does she want to eat instead of asking like you, what do you want to eat? I um, I'm. Yeah, that's always just like a little bit of a blow. Like, hey, I'm right here. <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, but I think sometimes it's the flip side of the coin where, um, yeah, I remember 
very early on, I was with my mom at the grocery store. And then I went around the corner to like pick out some eggs or something, um, just grocery shopping. And I remember someone coming up to me and telling me I was so inspirational for, for buying eggs. Um, and I was just like, this, this makes no sense. You know, like no one would have told me I was inspirational for buying eggs. And well, I understand that it came from probably a positive place. Um, you recognize that the undercurrent of that statement is, oh, wow, if I was you, I like I wouldn't be out of bed. Like, why are you here? Um, and that's a that's kind of a bit of a low blow. You know, like I I appreciate if someone thinks I'm inspirational because I'm doing really awesome, exciting things that are a lot of work and that I've put a lot of time into buying eggs. I don't know. I'm not convinced that's inspirational. <laughs> if someone has ideas about why that's inspirational, I would appreciate them. Um, so I think, you know, those kind of the flip side of those experiences of being both treated as less than or held up to this high standard just because you're continuing on with your life. Um, I think those basically epitomize the experience of what uh, the struggle of being treated so differently when ultimately, you know, I'm a person just like everyone else. I make mistakes. I stay, I say stupid things that I wish I could take back like other people all the time. Um, you know, we're all humans living through this questionable and confusing experience of life. And sometimes it's just like that reminder, just give everyone a little bit of grace, you know, take your time, experience things as you experience them. Remember that we're all, we're all human. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Speaking of uh, stupid questions. So this, just forgive me if I'm not as eloquent as I'd like to be with this one, but um, you've, you've spoken a lot about your experiences and your communication uh, specifically with women who are uh, bound to a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting subject because those are two communities that people tend to uh, look down on for one reason or another. So when you're working towards advocacy in um, in any of those regards, is there a tendency for you to want to combine things about a community consisting of sort of both of those, the middle of the Venn diagram, or is some of your work like on one end and then on the other as well? Yeah, I think the point you bring up is one that's super important in terms of disability and its intersectionality. Like disability crosses all identities. And there are so many aspects of that that I think deserve and require greater attention, you know, whether it's race, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, you know, all of those things. Um, and the way and I, I don't think we know much like in terms of research and just knowledge. And, you know, I don't think we know. And even, you know, I consider some of the stuff that I'm doing on the side in terms of health outcomes for persons with disabilities, uh, you know, we don't necessarily recognize the impact that having a disability as a white woman compared to a disability as a black woman compared to a disability as a white man, you know, what is that impact on how you experience disability, how you experience healthcare? Um, but I think it's something that we need to know and understand more. You know, you consider what is it? I think it's a um, a study by the CDC back in, I don't remember how many years ago, it's like two or three years ago, and it's estimated that one in four people have a disability, um, not necessarily mobility impairment, but like a disability through the the different identities um, or through the different, excuse me, classes of disability. And I think when you recognize there's that many people who could identify as disabled in the United States, and we don't understand how these identities are intersecting um, and impacting in very different ways and the ways that those needs change. 
uh, I think it's an important thing that we should be talking more about and considering. Um, my own advocacy is obviously based upon my own experience as a woman in a wheelchair, as a woman in a wheelchair, um, you know, as a proud wheelchair user. And I think it's even important to consider, like, when we think about language and the language that we use regarding wheelchair use. Um, you know, you'll hear the phrase wheelchair bound versus wheelchair user. Um, I think wheelchair bound is something that's kind of outdated um, in the sense that, like. I'm not bound to my wheelchair. I get out of it all the time, in and out. Um, and it's a very empowering piece of equipment for me, where some people will view, um, you know, and it's things like using it, empowering language and being empowered by your disability instead of using it as this, like, negative connotation. Um, but I think all of that to say is uh, my my work and advocacy is definitely based upon my own experiences because that's a place that I can speak from. Um, but I also recognize that there are so many important identities and intersections of disability that also deserve and require a lot of conversation. I think diversity is having a moment right now in the world, which is huge and wonderful, but I think disability is so often forgotten. It's like this lost second cousin that nobody even remembers is actually related to them. Um, And I wish that wasn't the case. And I think we just need to keep doing everything we can to bring it back into the conversation because it's Obviously, I'm very passionate and have a lot of personal stake in the world of disability. But I think for a number of reasons, um, disability knows no bounds. <laughs> it can happen to anyone at any time. Um, yeah. Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, let me apologize. I did use uh, bound in my earlier question. And I do realize now that that is not something I should have said. So I apologize oh, for my t- poor usage. No, you're and, totally okay. I was just thinking it's important to like talk about, oh, this is a good, because it's a, it's a very common word. People use it all the time, but you just necessarily don't recognize it if that's not a community you interact with or even just haven't thought about. So, right. but yeah. But the thing is like, this is, this is sort of broader because as a disabled individual, I do often speak in those negative terminology. I say <laughs> I'm mentally disabled and it's not, it's not something I really am proud of i don't say oh i'm a proud person with autism because in my experience it's only something that's been detrimental it's oh i'm not as socially adept as my peers or oh people are going to uh, make judgments of me because of the way i speak or they're going to even see that i had to fill in the little bubble in an in a um in a job application, and they're just going to say, oh, look at this guy. He's going to be trouble now. And so in in, in my experience, again, you, you say that it uh, goes from person to person, but the, because I don't have a lot of those, those positive thoughts, I, I am uh, more likely to use those sort of negative terminologies. And the, the, my frustration there is that because those are all personal, it makes it uh, more difficult for me to to empathize than I'd like because in my mind, empathy should be sharing the emotions that come from having something. But if I meet another autistic person and they say, oh yeah, I'm autistic and it's great because X, Y, and Z, I, my initial thought is just going to be, what are you talking about? Have you tried living your life? <laughs> 
Yeah, no, and I think that's that's such an important comment in terms of just like the experience of disability and how you experience disability. And I mean, like, don't get me wrong, disability is hard. Like, it is a hard experience to live as a disabled person right now. Um, I think there are a lot of improvements that have been made. You know, I'm so grateful for the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 that ultimately allows me to have the reality that I do in the sense that I can even go to school right now and that I can, you know, live in the building that I'm living. Don't get me wrong, there are hundreds of places in Chicago that I can't actually visit, even though I should physically be able to by the law. Um, but there are places that I can't. And and I think that's just, you know, that's a I think it's a broader commentary on society and how often we treat disability and how often society and kind of like a general population treats like physical disability and even, you know, mental, cognitive, whatever the whatever the class of disability you want to say. Um, and I think it's, you know, this bigger commentary and conversation that needs to be had about, okay, how can we make it that this is, you know, you can look for employers and um, that it isn't a problem to see like, okay, I need a reasonable accommodations, which should be not a big deal. But in some instances, it is, which is sad and like, not the point. So I, it's one of those, you're just like continuing to str- to press on and push forward, even though, man, is it exhausting for sure. Well, that's why I think it's so important to have conversations like the one we're having today is because, you know, there are a lot of people who don't know someone personally who uses a wheelchair, Um, but maybe they can listen to this and realize they're just a regular person (laughs) with, you know, regular thoughts and they can make a, a connection because I think that is the biggest barrier. And you mentioned earlier that, when you came home, people didn't know how to talk to you and people were worried about saying the wrong thing. I think this is a problem, generally speaking, across many, many different social contexts. We are also scared of making a misstep that we don't do anything. And that is the biggest problem. And so having a conversation like this, I am hoping, will enable people to go out there and be a little bit more brave, a little bit more vulnerable. Thanks, Brene. And uh, and go out there and make some human connections because, as we have learned on this show, everyone's life touches disability in one way or another. So thank you for your advocacy work and everything that you're doing to get the story out there. Um, I'm very curious to know, do you um, study uh, issues around disability as part of your PhD work? Yeah, yeah, I wish I could say that I did. But technically, my PhD right now is actually focusing on immunology and heart transplant. Um, it's a fascinating study. I love it. Um, my work in disability is kind of more of my passion project on the side. So I do, I do disability related research on the side. So it's not associated with my PhD. Um, although I will admit, I hope to spend my future career doing more disability related work within medicine, especially along the idea of intersectionality and health outcomes. Um, I think that's huge hugely important in an area that isn't talked about or looked into nearly as often as it said. So I'm working, I'm working kind of on the side in more disability related work. Um, yeah. So I, but I think it's, you know, it's obviously something I'm passionate about and something that I really, really love. So that isn't my PhD, but it's definitely like, it's like my, my honorary, my personal PhD, I guess like it's, it's a very different thing, but. <laughs> well, and it's part of your future. I mean, the PhD is just the first step. Exactly. All right, Sam. So I have a very hard-pressing question, like a 2020 news question. Let's get to it. So I noticed on your blog that you say and describe yourself as a sheep fanatic. So what is a sheep fanatic and how come? What is that all about? 
<laughs> yeah, so I think this is, I blame my mother for this, actually, and the fact that I was a 4-H kid growing up. Um, and so, you know, in 4-H, you have all these different projects that you can take. And I, yeah, I took foods and nutrition and knitting and sewing and those kinds of things. And then in high school, all of a sudden, my mom comes to me and goes, Sam, would you want to take sheep as a sheep as a fair project? I was like, huh. And actually, she had asked my little sister first. My little sister was like, yeah, no way, not interested in that. And then she asked me, and I was like, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. So this was my, I think my junior year of high school. And then I got my first sheep. He was a black a black lamb, which is very fitting because I'm kind of a bit of a black sheep. It's the proud, problematic middle child. Um, so his name was Fillmore. And then... It was all downhill from there. So I had my first fair projects where the first three, my first three sheep was Fillmore, Russell, and Gonzo. Um, no, Fillmore, Rupert, and Gonzo, Gonzo. And then Russell and Enzo came the year after that. So I've, and then I've, uh, I just kind of like fell in love with sheep over that course of that year. And I, I mean, I knit, so it was part of like, I love the wool and I'm very much a wool knitter and actually I had knit a dress out of wool from Make It With Wool competition back in high school as well and got to go to Nashville to compete in the in the National Make It With Wool contest. I'm just kind of like a bit of a I really like wool and sheep. Um, and then when I was at the University of Minnesota, I was the flock manager for when they had their, their lambing season. So I got to be in charge of making sure that if the ewes were having their, their lambs and things weren't going according to plan, um, like if there was a leg twisted back and you had to kind of readjust that and then get the lamb out correctly i got to do that and the only spring break trip i ever took was actually to a sheep ranch in i own oregon for a jam to lamb with three thousand ewes and i got to help with lambing season this was all pre-injury um but yeah now i just like really love sheep if you're on facebook live you can see i have some sheep friends up on top of my fridge um little sheep stuffed animals <laughs> otherwise throughout the course of my um the rest of my apartment has plenty of well, Clarence apparently just knocked something over. So Clarence the cat is making his presence. Apparently he doesn't like me talking about sheep. He thinks we should talk about cats. Um, but yes, no, I, I really like sheep, period. Sam, you, you are awesome. And, uh, <laughs> that, uh, I get it. So we're running out of time. And so what is the final thing that you would like to say today to our listeners about your story and what you're hoping that they will hear and do? Yeah, I think maybe the two things is I think the biggest mistake is not uh, not trying or not stepping out. And I think Meredith stepped on the, or mentioned this before. It's like, you know, if, if you know someone with a disability or just too nervous, you know, it's, it's better to make mistakes or to, to try something than not try at all. Um, and then the second one would be, you know, be open and willing to learn. Start thinking about disability in your day-to-day life. Um, take notice of things that are related to disability. Do you go to a coffee shop that doesn't have, or, you know, doesn't have an accessible entrance? Um, how are the curb cutouts in your community? Are they reasonable? Can a wheelchair actually use the curb cutouts? <laughs> you know, like um, little things like that that maybe you wouldn't have noticed before. Uh, yeah, I think just be aware, be more aware, be open and willing to learn. Thank you, Sam. This is uh, KHOI Story City Ames. You've been listening to I Am Able Iowa. We've been talking to Sam Schroth. I Am Able Iowa airs the first and last Saturday morning of each month at 9 a.m. on KHOI 89.1 FM. You can also hear us streaming live online at khoifm.org. 
on Saturdays in the middle of the month, please tune in to Insight of the Mind with Julie Saxton, who provides valuable information about mental health issues. We invite you to share your comments, questions, and program ideas with us at contact at IamAbleIowa.com. You can also visit IamAbleIowa.com to find previous episodes and more information about our program. Please tune in for our next show on August 7th with our guest Brianna Bluen from Easter Seals. So I Am Able Iowa is produced by Able Up Iowa, headquartered right here in Ames, Iowa. Able Up Iowa helps people of all abilities become independent by providing solutions to financial needs and empowering them to achieve their financial goals. Our I Am Able Iowa music was composed and performed by Sean Ryan. I Am Able Iowa is brought to you by Barbara Wright, Iowa Able Foundation, Kurt Soderberg, and Lynn Van Clark. Thank you, Samantha Edwards, our I Am Able Iowa researcher, for coming up with our opening question as well as the questions for our guest. Thank you for listening, and until next time, this is Anna Magnuson, Daniel Hedendorf, and Meredith Frankham saying, You are Able Iowa.